Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Is this a fever? Is this just allergies? Caught in a lockdown, no escape from the family. Don't touch your eyes, just hand sanitize quickly. Coronavirus Rhapsody. Uh, originally Queen, of course, but reinterpreted by Dana Jabine and Adrian Grimes on the vocals. As the um, as coronavirus, the novel coronavirus was ripping apart life as we know it. Cambridge comedian Dana J. Byne, who suffers from allergies, sneezed in his apartment, and the sneeze. This is the origin story. The sneeze prompted a melody to pop into his head. The first two lines of the Queen's epic Bohemian Rhapsody: "Is this the real life, or is this just fantasy?" And they quickly mutated those lyrics into, is this a sore throat or is this just allergies? And he was off. And within 10 minutes, Byne, who isn't a musician or a songwriter, had written a set of fully fleshed out and fiendishly clever parodic lyrics about COVID-19. And we thought we'd play that for you. Uh, It's also on the YouTube. And Dr Chris Smith consultant clinical virologist at Cambridge University, is with us once again. Hello, welcome. Are you still well? I'm going to give them a clap because I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's made my week, that has. I will be laughing about that and telling people about that for the next next week. It's fabulous. It's extraordinarily clever. It's worth listening to once again, just for a smile. Are you well? Yes, yes, very well, thank you. And I hope you are too. I am well. Um, Tell me, the debate about face masks. You are well known for your <laughs> position that face masks do not protect you from COVID-19, the coronavirus. But the jury seems to have been having another think. What's the situation? Yeah, I was actually watching the Downing Street press conference because I don't know if you've been tuning into any of these, but every day uh, a number of people, usually a trio of politicians or high-ranking members of uh, society who are involved in running our country, appear in front of the nation's media and they present the latest situation, any new announcements in terms of new manoeuvres, initiatives, etc. And then they take questions from the press. And one of the questions today, I suppose predictably was, what about face masks? Because this has moved on, this debate has resurfaced this week and people are asking, well, should we go down this route or not? And and actually, uh, James Van Tam, who is the Deputy Chief Medical Officer here in the UK, was very emphatic and he said he was having a conversation this morning with a colleague in Hong Kong who helped to write the guidance that the WHO have been considering about this very question and they were very, very clear that there is no compelling evidence that adopting face masks will actually make any difference. And he used the example, and I'm going to paraphrase horribly, but the point he's making is, and you know, this was the thing that struck me when I first went to Japan and I boarded a train and everyone was wearing a face mask and I thought I'd got into a carriage with a 
convention full of surgeons or something and my half Japanese friend said no no these people all have respiratory infections and it's impolite behavior one wears a face mask and it obviously doesn't work very well because they're all wearing them and um, that was really the stance taken by the deputy chief medical officer which is that, that this is a societal thing that people do there's not really any evidence to underpin this behaviour. And uh, and there is quite quite good science to suggest that, that actually it probably doesn't help. One possible kernel of truth in this might be that in the same way as we could sneeze into a hanky and mitigate the spread a bit, if you've got a face mask on and you're symptomatic and you cough all over somebody, it probably will reduce the amount of virus that you deluge them in. So that may make a difference. But for the average passive wearer who's not ill, probably no benefit. But, but Chris, the, Anthony Fauci, the health official in the United States, and he's on the U.S. Coronavirus Task Force, he is saying that COVID-19 can be spread by people just breathing on one another. Yeah, but that doesn't mean a face mask is any good. Yes, he's probably right. Not? These are respiratory infections. Coronaviruses inhabit your nose, throat and the lungs. And therefore, what comes out of your mouth has been in your lungs. And if you go out on a cold day and you breathe out, you see a big plume of steam. That's water vapour and droplets that have come from your respiratory tract. And if you've got virus growing on your respiratory tract, as the air comes whooshing out, then it will pick up droplets which have got virus particles in them. And so it's absolutely true that, that these viruses are absolutely tiny. The particles or droplets of water that come out are absolutely tiny. That's why they float around in the air and you see them disappearing up like a plume of steam. That's true. And a person coughing or sneezing just propels them a bit faster. But talking to someone's pretty efficient way for these viruses to spread. That That is true. But the key thing is not whether or not that's true. It's whether or not if I then put a piece of material over my face, which quickly gets damp, which has got gaps around the side because it doesn't fit my face properly. And quite quickly, all the particles that land on the front work their way through the dampness and then into me. That's the question, and that's what I'm disputing is actually of any benefit. Now, I'll hold my hands up. If someone can show me the evidence that really this cuts down infection rates, then, you know, I'll reverse my position. But I'm going by the evidence presented at the moment, and people who know a lot more about this than me who have told me there is no evidence to support at the moment wide-scale adoption of this practice. It's cosmetic. It's not effective. And face masks work in hospitals because... They are correctly fitted and they're the proper masks and because you you get to know how to remove them properly without becoming infected and so on and so forth. Yes, they are using a different class of mask. In a hospital, you're using FFP3. And this is a way of ranking these masks. There's a pecking order for masks. And at the top of that scale are these masks that have a very high stringency. The gaps between the particles in the filters are very tiny. They'll exclude particles smaller than these viruses. So the viruses are excluded. And because they're fitting properly to your face, there's no gaps for the viruses to sneak around the edges. And that includes on the way in or on the way out. So those work. And the other thing that people in hospital do is they protect their eyes. And these people you see walking around on the streets, they're not protecting their eyes. And your eyes are connected to your nose. There's a tear duct which goes from the centre lower eyelid where it meets your nose, a little back dot there, a punctum, and your tears drain down there and they go into your nose. And therefore anything that lands on your eyes, these viruses, these coronaviruses probably infect the surface of the eye anyway, but they then drain down into the nose and they can find the tissues they want to infect down there too. So you must protect your eyes as well. So if you're going to do this, you've got to go the whole hog. You, you've got to adopt the complete, you know, diving helmet kind of approach. If you're, if you're really serious about this and you know no half measures here. The other thing about masks is, of course, that they may well, and I think you've mentioned this before, 
if they were widely used by the public, they would give people a false sense of security. Well, people have said that, that there is that to it. I mean, I think that's that's probably uh, an element, but I don't think it's the massive major thing going on here. Um, probably it does encourage people to think they're more protected than they are, but then how many people would probably knowingly put themselves in harm's way just to be daring? I doubt there's many. The thing that they do definitely do is encourage people to fiddle with their face a lot more because it's uncomfortable and it's sweaty and it's itchy and it's irritating. Oh. Believe me, you know, I've stood in theatres for seven hours doing an abdominal aortic aneurysm repair and wearing one of those things for even an hour is a real pain. And when you get to the, the X number of hours, you are really desperate to take this thing off. Um so it encourages people to touch it. They've obviously got to eat and drink as well, which means they're touching the surface of it. And that means they may be transferring virus from hands and fingers more to the mask surface. And, of course, it's going to pull virus through with every breath. Uh, and it could it could, inf- it could encourage infection. I, I don't think this is an enormous thing. I think the point is that compared with the benefits of doing all the other things that people are doing, staying at home, all the things we heard in that lovely song, staying at home, staying away from other people, they're the source of the infection, wash your hands if you interact with surfaces that other people could have touched or deposited viruses onto, those are going to make a much bigger difference to protecting you than a piece of material that you, you know, a pair of tights that you ripped up and tied around your face to look like a bank robber. All right, that's it for masks. I'm sick of it already. Now, I just talked to Dr. Michael Mosley, he of the intermittent fasting diet fame, and he's now written a sleep book. But in the process, he both his sons have had COVID-19 and are over it now. But he mentioned, because he's doing a documentary on the coronavirus, he mentioned that there's a huge... Um, uh, vaccine push going on, as you know, but in Imperial College, they reckon they could have a vaccine up and running way before the end of this year. Do you know anything about that? There are lots and lots of players in this market. There are companies in America, there's a group in Australia, there are groups in the UK, there's a Belgian company I spoke to the other day. There are lots of people racing to get into this market. But the the, the problem is that one must not rush this. And the reason is that it is very possible with this family of viruses to make an infection worse if you get your vaccine off target. Yeah. No, so I get that. So it's very important to, seemed, not to I mean, bypass I, the safety did, measures. Yep, 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 yep. He did seem very excited about it, however. He said it was an RNA vaccine. It was being developed at Imperial College in London. Yep. And they were, you know, supremely confident and all the rest of it. You don't know anything about that specific effort? Well, I, I've, I've reviewed a lot of these things and they're all, by and large, the same sort of practice. There are lots of RNA vaccines. Moderna, who are one of the companies in the States, they're making an RNA vaccine. Another company, which is, in, which is both in the UK and in Belgium, called E the RNA, they're also in on this act. Uh, they're all making various RNA-based vaccines. The point is, and, and why Mr Mosley, Dr Mosley, may be slightly misguided, about how fast this is going to be available is that we've never used an RNA vaccine to cure anybody or prevent anybody catching anything. It would be a brand new style of therapeutic going into the market. Therefore, there is no precedent. Therefore, it has to go through at least some semblance of trials to prove it is safe, to prove it is effective. And before we spend an enormous amount of money, because we've got nearly 8 billion people on the planet who are all vulnerable to this thing. We've got to protect them. And safety is paramount. We're already struggling to keep people safe. It would be awful if we went in and made the very people we're trying to protect give them a vaccine that made them less safe. So it is important we don't bypass the safety measures. And I think that, you know, even with the best will in the world, you know, to, to achieve this in a year, which is what people are saying they might be able to do, is still an incredible achievement, let alone doing it in less than that. 
Um, a question has come in, and it says this. A considerable number of infected people are reportedly entirely symptomless and so are unaware of their infection. Until a much higher proportion of the population has been tested, we cannot know the true number of infected people and hence the rate of the spread. There have been suggestions that in view of this, coronavirus is no more serious than a flu epidemic. And presumably he's talking about in terms of infection fatality ratio. Any mm -hmm. comment to make on that, Chris? Uh, yeah. Um, what we know at the moment is roughly how fast it's spreading by inference. So what we're doing is we're saying, well, how many people have actually ended up in hospital or ended up in hospital and been really unwell? And then you can back extrapolate to work out how many people there are in the population who must have been infected for each really ill one. Now, that that number, the UK chief scientific officer, Patrick Valance, suggested that number or that ratio may be something in the order of about a thousand. It may be even more than that. Using these sorts of calculations, there was a paper released at the beginning of this week which suggested that already in the UK, for example, the attack rate, in other words, how many people in the population have already had this, is probably close to a few percent. So we're talking about two or three million people have already had it in the UK. And that's a dramatic increase from what we thought a few weeks ago when we thought that number was about 5,000. Um, now, if you look at uh, closed populations of people that have been studied quite intensively, they can be quite informative to answer your question. And um, what do I mean by that? I mean, as in groups of people like those who were ensconced on the Diamond Princess and couldn't leave, those people were then taken home and they'd been studied for whether they caught it or not over a long period of time. Another group of people who were in Wuhan in lockdown were then uh, rescued back to Japan, for example, and they were all carefully studied on their way in and out. And among them were, exactly as you say, groups of people who had no symptoms, declared they felt absolutely fine, but they could recover virus from these people, suggesting that some people do catch this, they do catch it asymptomatically, and they potentially are infectious during that period. Now, this is not new news. We've known this for some time because, you know, right at the outset, we said, well, looks like about 80% of people just have a trivial or no symptom infection. But the 20%, the one in five who get it, have more severe symptoms. So at the moment, we are beginning to get more clarity on the numbers, and they are doing a lot of tests on people. But just diagnosing who's got it right now is always going to be linked to how many tests you do. And unless you're going to test the entire population every week to get the true dynamics of the disease, you're always going to fall victim to having to do some maths and some extrapolation. But in your mind, does the very large number now estimated to have been infected, not reduce the urgency of the situation because it, by comparison, reduces the fatality rate? Uh, I, I don't think it does because uh, we know that the number is still relatively low. If, if we look at roughly how many people we were testing, and, and I believe the figures for the following reason... Uh, I'm working in and helping to run one of the laboratories that's that's one of the eight labs in England which is testing people for this new coronavirus. Uh, every day we're churning out now, in some cases, 700 test results. When I added up about a few weeks ago how many of them were positive as a fraction of all the tests done, 
it was a single single numbers of percent, about 5% of the tests. So in other words, we out of every 100 tests we did, only about five were coming up positive. The other 95 were negative. In other words, these are people with symptoms, but they're not infected with this coronavirus. They've got some other cause of having those symptoms. Now, wind the f- that forward to last week. And on Friday of last week, I did the same calculation and a third 30 plus percent of the tests we ran were now popping up with a positive diagnosis for coronavirus. Last weekend on Saturday, it was 50 percent when I was on duty. So in other words, we've gone from it being a very low level in the population. We're entering this very sudden spike. And at the same time, it is mirrored by the number of people who are unfortunately becoming severely unwell and unfortunately losing their life to this. So therefore, the association between the two is valid and the the mathematical back extrapolation of how many cases there are who are severe, mapping that onto how many cases there must therefore be in society is a reasonable one. And we've reason to suspect that this reproductive number, the r naught value, how fast it's spreading, how well it goes from one person to the next, is perhaps even higher than we had first anticipated, maybe as high as four. And the mortality rates we're declaring do appear to to be reasonable in terms of, of what our estimates are. I, I don't think we're overestimating the risk here. Um, I should have talked about this in the context of vaccination, but antibody amelioration seems to be on the horizon, a dose of antibodies from people who have cleared the virus or have recovered from the virus. Uh, What do you think about that? This has a long history, and it was first reported in the wake of the 1918 flu. People reported, but they didn't obviously know why it worked or why it might have any potential to work back there in 1918. But they took samples of serum, that's the plasma of the blood, from some people and put it into some other very ill people. They used particularly individuals who had recovered from this and put it into individuals who were sickening for it. And in some cases, they reported some degree of clinical improvement. Now, obviously, it's a poorly controlled environment poorly documented we don't really know what they did and they don't really know what they did but that was where people got the idea that you might be able to transfer some kind of humoral factor from one person to another the rationale was well if they've recovered perhaps there's something in the blood that's magical and can can confer resistance or protection now wind forward to the modern era we know this sort of thing can work and we use this sort of thing routinely in virology all the time. For instance, we get antibodies from people who have had chicken pox. We concentrate them down and we make a very concentrated bottle of chicken pox antibodies. If someone comes to us who is, say, pregnant or at very high risk of getting severe chicken pox and they've never had the infection and they would get very severe infection having been exposed, we can prevent them from getting very severe infection by injecting them with a dose of these antibodies, which amount to doing a a pretty similar thing. Now, you could argue, well, why don't we take loads of blood from the people who've recovered from this new coronavirus, get the antibodies that they must have made out of it, and then shove those into people who are getting very severe coronavirus infection? There are a couple of reasons why this might be an issue. One is that the population of the world is nearly 8 billion. The population of the world that's had this new virus is currently very low those individuals would be bled dry very quickly to treat not very many people because the amount of antibody you get from a person wouldn't be that high. That's the first thing. The second constraint I can see, I don't have evidence for this, but I would speculate it may be a problem. We think that the people developing really severe disease, at least in some cases, is because their own immune system is going nuts. 
the virus has done something to drive the immune system too hard and the immune system is what's damaging their tissue. So my concern would be if we give them even more immunity, this might actually counteract the the beneficial side of what their body is doing and make their situation worse. And it's for that reason there is a clinical trial running in the UK now to look at the evidence whether or not there is any to support giving a low dose of immunosuppression to the most severely affected cases to see if this can prevent some of this immune overstimulation and immune damage to to lung Mm. tissue it's so counterintuitive isn't it well it's not it's not a walk in the park and we we don't have very much experience of this and so we're trying to try to feel our way and everyone's feeling their way gently and that's why they're trying to repurpose old drugs and see if they can find new treatments we talked last week briefly about uh, hydroxychloroquine for example one example of an of an existing drug which appears to have some kind of ability to affect the way that the virus uh, grows or spreads between cells etc in the body that's undergoing trials dexamethasone a steroid to damp down immunity that's undergoing trials and there's evidence as well that perhaps and this is very tenuous but perhaps one of the antiretroviral drugs were used to treat hiv infection there's a pair of drugs called lapinavir ritonavir which are used in combination for various reasons they may also have an effect here so those are being tested as well to try and generate robust resilient evidence to find out if there really is an effect or if it's just a statistical artifact from a small number of patients it was tested on when the idea was first mooted i mean i'll keep on asking you about these things until something comes through that says yes or no one way or the other but how long do you think that might take well the trial in fact they've now in the uk trial has now recruited 900 people it's been running a week so they've already got 900 people been randomised to these different things because the point is there, there are all these claims from people who were initially infected in various countries and people tried a bit of this and tried a bit of that. So there were many sort of case reports and non-peer-reviewed kind of anecdotes. Oh, we did this or we did this and they got better. And that's not the same as robust clinical evidence. So what the team led by Peter Horby in Oxford are doing is a proper randomised trial. And as we get people coming into the health service, they're getting their diagnosis they're being randomized onto one of these treatments which is blind treatment so they either get the hydroxychloroquine or they get the dexamethasone or they get the the lapinavir ritonavir combo and they're followed up to see how their disease course goes because the other question is we don't know when is the right time to intervene is it when someone first starts to display symptoms or is it when they're starting to feel a bit better initially before they get worse again or is it, is it both or does it not matter? Does it work better in older people? Does it work better in younger people? So slowly, by doing enough cases for long enough, we'll begin to get a clearer picture, we hope. And of course, they'll be, they'll be following these people all the time and, and seeing if any clear trend emerges quickly, that they'll very quickly translate that into clinical practice. In Iceland, which is always an interesting place to look um, for epidemiologists, I imagine, it seems because they can practically test everybody and their dog. Um, uh, uh, between 25 and 50% of carriers have no symptoms but can still spread the disease, they say. So does that not mean, and this is pertinent in New Zealand, does that not mean that unless everyone gets tested, there's no point? Well, I'm not familiar with that data, so I can't comment specifically. You'll have to send me some data or, or set me some homework, Kim, to go away and, and read exactly what the Iceland experience is. And maybe I'll try and do a bit of that over the weekend. Um, but 
the point at the moment and the stance that, that countries like like the UK are taking is that there are 65 plus million people in the country. And even with the best will in the world, if we were doing 25,000 tests a day, which is the current target, then you can see it will actually take years to test the entire population. And therefore, if you're going to do this meaningfully, you'd need to be testing everyone much more rapidly than that. So that's just not practical. So the current stance, the current approach is you set a case definition. If you get these symptoms, here's what you do. You put yourself into isolation with your family unit, and then you do that for 14 days because you will have it. You'll pass it on to the people who you live with because 80% of the transmissions we know happen that way. And then at the end of 14 days, everyone emerges either immune or better, or hopefully both, And or they didn't have it in the first place. And if they didn't have it in the first place, then they rinse and repeat. And if they did have it, they're immune and they're not going to have it again. And that's sort of achieving the same as if we went and told a whole bunch of people, hey, you've got this what difference does that make to them? They're still going to go and isolate themselves and they're still going to get immunity. The key thing that will come will be when we've got antibody tests where we can look to see how many people are now immune in the population. They are beginning to do that in in, um, one, one lab in the UK, but a more broad antibody test that people could use at home, for example, so that they could they could then decide for themselves, I'll test myself, find out if I'm immune, and then they'd, they'd know whether or not they, they could go to work with impunity or, you know, go out with impunity or not. That's still in the works. That's not available yet. Should that be long? I mean, that seems relatively simple and harmless. Yeah, it, it does. But but um, I'm told by people in the government, the government have, have been evaluating, this is the UK government, have been evaluating a number of tests. And one of the tests that they tested to see if they're any good or not, actually got the answer wrong 75% of the time. So before they go wheeling out millions of tests, giving false reassurance and potentially endangering millions of people, they need to be absolutely sure that they've got this right. So um, I agree with you. It doesn't sound like a, a complex problem, but actually we're we're working at such a frantically fast pace and companies are just chucking out tests that haven't been through the normal rigour that, that comes with designing, building and then quality assuring and approving these sorts of tests. There hasn't have been time for, for, the, for the full-on appraisal. So there are some dodgy operators entering the market and it's very easy to get fooled by them. So if you do get one of these cheap tests off the internet, please, please be very careful because it may mislead you. Um, this this is a, a big question for us. We are told that we could totally eradicate the virus. Can we? I think that's a realistic prospect because if you look at uh, what features a virus has to have to be eradicable, let's take the one massive success story that uh, mankind has to its name, and that is smallpox. Smallpox was eradicated with a very effective vaccination campaign that took a long time to reach its endpoint and completion, but it was successful. Why was it successful? Because the only known host of smallpox was the human. And if you have no animal reservoir, no environmental reservoir where this virus can lurk and hide, then if you immunise everybody and stop the thing spreading, it must disappear. So in theory, you could do that. And in fact, we're, we're, we're net within reach now of, of eradicating other diseases. Polio has gone from millions of cases and tens of thousands of people suffering the effects of polio infection every year, half a century ago, to, you know, down to just handfuls of cases in a handful of countries now. Polio is within a gnat's whisker of being 
completely eradicated. And that's also because there is no other known host for polio other than humans. Now, the rub here comes from the fact that, A, this was a zoonotic infection in the first place. It came to us from bats with a chunk of pangolin mixed in, and we're still unpicking exactly how that happened. Now, that, that means, as though we, although we think it's a human-only infection at the moment because probably that jump happened once, didn't happen again, because we've, we've got genetic evidence for that. That doesn't mean that there isn't some bat somewhere with this lurking in it, so there could be an animal reservoir. So it's not a given that it's a purely human infection, this. Also, there are case reports emerging that people's perhaps dogs and cats might have this. And although they're few and far between... Ooh, wouldn't that be awful if we if we then think, well, we're all fine, but actually the, the family dog is spreading it for us. So who knows? Watch this space. It's a very important question to answer, and people will be looking into this in great detail because it has implications for how we go about our vaccination strategy. Somebody um, texted me a little earlier and said, can I catch it from my dog? <laughs> well, there's there's one case report that I've read, which is from Hong Kong, and somebody caught the virus and allegedly gave it to their dog and they did serial swabs on the dog over a period of time and recovered virus on a number of occasions, I'm told, from that dog. But what they recovered was very low level of virus, which suggests it would be probably below an infectious dose. So the dog probably wouldn't pose a risk. But we don't know that yet because we don't have enough experience and we haven't actually done those sorts of tests. There was also a case report in the last week of a person from Belgium who apparently managed to infect their cat. And so they got swabs from the cat that was also positive. Again, whether that means that cats can give it to other cats and then set up an animal reservoir, like a feline reservoir or a dog reservoir, or cats can feed it back to their owners, this is going to be another very important question, which I guess someone, someone I guarantee someone's working quite hard on this because it's a big issue. Let us speak of the Swedish model, Chris. Unlike Denmark and Finland and Norway, there is no lockdown in Sweden. They're not calling it herd immunity. They're calling it a strategy of mitigation. The reasoning being that they, as it's been explained by their top medical officer, we can't keep the lockdown on forever. Are we being stupid or is Sweden completely wrong? Well, what this highlights is that there are geographical, there are regional, there are cultural, sociological differences across the world. And what works in one place won't work necessarily in another. Just because it works in South Korea to do a certain thing doesn't mean it would translate to New Zealand. Look at the population density differences, for example. Look at, look at say, Sweden versus the UK. Sweden has a very small population compared to a, a gut-bustingly enormous population in the UK. That means our population density is a lot higher. The amount of time that people are spending on trains to commute to go to work will be very different between the two places. How people live in terms of the the household density is very different. If you, if you ask the uh, Swedish Interior Ministry how many single owner-occupier houses are there in Sweden, that's a very high number. If you do the same comparison in the UK, we have a very low number. So in other words, if you say to people, isolate yourself, well, they do anyway, because loads of people live on their own. So therefore, it's a very different 
comparison. You're not comparing apples with apples, and that's always a bit of a risk. So Sweden at the moment are taking their stance and their approach, and that may be working for them. But it may just be that the dynamics are going to be a bit different, and it's going to surge a bit later in Sweden. On the other hand, they might end up being the the real people who are triumphant here, and they've made the right call. Time is going to tell, but I, I don't think we can say because something works in one country, it will definitely translate to another one because every country is different. Um, questions about the very high death rates initially in Spain. Could there? This is how one questioner puts it. Could their continuing attachment to the smoking of tobacco be a contributing factor? People have looked at this. And initially, when people noticed that there was, for instance, a a very high death rate among men in China compared with women, people said, "Ah, is this because more men smoke?" But then, when they started to see the same trend emerge in Italy, it was clear where there were a significantly lower proportion of smokers, but an equivalently high fraction of men who were succumbing in the first place to infection and then succumbing to severe disease. Fifty-eight percent of men versus forty-two percent of women get infected, and seventy percent of men make up the cases in intensive care, compared to only thirty percent women. So there's clearly a bias, and they ruled out smoking as being the cause of that. So it's it's not just smoking. Anything that causes chest disease is going to increase your risk of having a severe problem with any respiratory virus, let alone just this new one. And smoking is a major risk factor for heart disease. It's a major risk factor for vascular disease. Full stop. And it's a major risk factor for other organ damage. So smoking is is such an impact on your health. It's going to is going to cause an increase anyway. So that's a kind of given. But it's not the be all and end all. There's other things behind this as well that we're still trying to learn about. Air pollution might be a factor as well. Northern Italy, China. Yep, people have suggested that that、uh, again anything that's a particulate that can get into your lungs that will cause chronic damage and air pollution also causes vascular injury, which again increases your risk. So that's certainly a consideration. Yes. All right, contact tracing. There seems to be a wider adoption of technology in contact. Tracing those apps and those mobile phone contacts to do this. Yeah, is is that the way forward on this? And how vital is contact tracing? It depends when you're talking about. When you're very early in an outbreak situation and you have a part or a geography or a part of the world where there's very low levels of a virus, it makes enormous sense to adopt a containment strategy. And what that means is that when a case pops up in your country, you throw enormous resources at finding it, finding all of the contacts of that case, and then quarantining, ring fencing all of it, stamping it out, and eliminating the the the, the spread. And you do that by enormous amounts of testing, because then you can find out exactly where it is, who's got it, and who's given it to whom, and that brings the whole thing to a close. But when you get to a stage when you have a big population and very widespread、uh, spread in that population, it is less useful to just be testing lots of people because you're answering a question: Have I got it? Yes or no? If you're telling people to isolate themselves anyway, that additional piece of knowledge isn't really that beneficial to stamping it out. In in that sort of sense, if you've got an isolation strategy like that, now what Korea will argue and and some other countries is they'll say, ah,、oh, but by giving people this information, it motivated them to know that they had it and they could therefore isolate themselves. And this is sort of playing playing into the 
are there any people in the population who are asymptomatic and shedding the virus and could infect people? And that's really where they're coming from. But when you've got populations on the scale that many countries have, I mean, you know, there's, there's 350 million plus people in the US that with the best will in the world. There's no way you can test that many people all the time without robbing resources away from the very places that are actually actively at the coalface trying to save lives. So the decision is being made in many cases to prioritise the testing, to guide medical management and also to test the healthcare workers who are being exposed so that they know if they have or haven't got it so that they don't take time off work unnecessarily or if they have had it that once they've recovered they're now immune and they don't need to worry about going to work. All right, here's a tough question. What about the ethics surrounding complete economic shutdown and the resulting damage that will be handed on to the younger generations all in order to save what is a pretty low number of people, most of them elderly? Yeah, and um, yeah, you could say, right, what we're going to do is going to be really, really selfish about this and we're just going to say, well, you know, I'm okay probably most most people in their 40s 50s they're all right um so we'll just carry on business as usual and we'll just let the grim reaper call and they'll get rid of all the old people it'll solve our population crisis problem the healthcare and this the kind of looking after older people uh, is costing the country is a fortune anyway so this will solve so many problems let's just do that <laughs> and then there's the real thing which is we aren't like that you know we are a caring society we care about our older people many of them fought to to give us the freedoms we have in the world etc so we we can't neglect them in this way so uh, you know it, it's just not feasible to take that sort of stance we've gone through life running up debts to look after people and you know we're not going to stop doing that now it's it's one of those things and there are many younger people among the victims as well so it would be a very daring uh, politician who said let's just go business as usual i I don't think we're going to find many people who are subscribing to that particular uh, idea even though the economic damage might stop us from dealing humanely with future generations i think there will be enormous economic fallout i think that's true but uh as, as one person put it to me a week or so ago, they said, OK, if uh, if there were 10 people in a room and uh, an older person walked in and you pointed to them and you said, OK, which of you is willing to stay in your house for a year uh, to save this person's life? Uh, there would be no one who wouldn't volunteer, I'm sure. And effectively, what we're all doing is we're all paying to make sure that, that everyone is saved. And it's not just older people. There There are. I mean, we've just seen today on our news here we've got two nurses who have died today and the youngest of the two was 36 and we've had two people who are 13 and 21 this week as well who have died Uh, so this is not just affecting older people yes they're at higher risk but this is an equal opportunities virus it's affecting everybody in one way or another and some people are losing their lives and that's what we're trying to stop thank you chris nice as ever to talk to you and stay well